So Romans 8, as we have seen the past several weeks, is full of wonderful, beautiful, profound gospel truth. And here's the things that we learn about the gospel and who we are in Christ. No condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. We are children of God. We are in Christ. We are alive in the spirit. We have this wonderful hope for resurrection one day. These are the the truths that, that Romans 8 holds out for us. It's no wonder that the message of Jesus Christ is called the gospel, which means good news. These are good news. These are joyous truths for us, and we rejoice and we celebrate in them. But here is a question that we have to wrestle with. And as we sort of move through the book or through chapter eight of the book of Romans, that the apostle Paul begins to unpack as well is in light of these wonderful truths, in light of these wonderful gospel promises, what should our expectations of life be? Like we hear these wonderful declarations of who we are in Jesus and the power in the spirit, but what expectations should we have living in a fallen, broken painful, sinful world. See, too often, here is how Christianity gets packaged. Hey, if you believe in Jesus, all your problems will go away. Sometimes the gospel is spoken of in this way. Hey, you want your marriage to be better? Well, you should try Jesus. You want your finances to be in order? You want more money? Well, try Jesus. You want to be a better parent so you can have better kids? Try Jesus. Hey, are you suffering bodily? Are you sick? Are you infirm? Hey, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you have enough faith, then hey, all of that will be gone. He will heal you. Uh, Here's the challenge with that. Does Jesus transform your marriage? Absolutely. Will Jesus empower you to be a godly parent? Yes. Can Jesus transform and save your kids? Amen. Does Jesus heal? Yes, he does. Can Christ absolutely and utterly transform your life? Absolutely, yes, we hold on to these truths. But here is the problem with the way Christianity can be packaged sometimes. It's as if we should completely just remove suffering from our lives. It's as if if I believe the gospel, then suffering should be removed from my life. And if it's not, then there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my faith. There's something wrong with the way that I am living. And so implicit in the ways that Christianity can be talked about is the idea that it removes suffering. Now, the question for us is this. Is that what Romans 8 articulates for us? Is that an accurate representation of the gospel according to Romans chapter 8? Well, let's continue through these verses and see for ourselves. So let's first look at verses 16 and 17. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here again is wonderful gospel news. Here is wonderful promise and confidence. The Spirit of God, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God himself testifies with your spirit. You're a son. You're a daughter. Here's what this means. Your confidence is not in your performance. Your confidence is not in your ability to sort of gin up this feeling, oh, I am in Christ, I'm a child. It's not upon our own efforts and our own emotional and psychological state to have confidence. No, the Spirit himself, the idea here testifies. It means he speaks truth to you. He's an expert witness. Look, he speaks truth even when you have a hard time believing in it and resting in it. 
We're so fickle in our emotions. We're so fickle in our faith. But here the Spirit comes in and says, no, you're a son. You're a daughter. Rest in this. It's a beautiful truth of the gospel, another wonderful promise for us. And then what else does this say? If we're children, then we're heirs. Last week, we looked at this idea of adoption, that the gospel says, not only am I forgiven, not only has my sin been dealt with, not only do I stand before God not condemned, but forgiven and free and not guilty, but I'm also brought into the family. God is my father. He loves me. I'm a son, or you're a daughter or a son. There's this wonderful relationship, family language here. And as the Apostle Paul will push even further, if you're a child, this means that you're an heir. So he's using Roman sort of family legal law language here because within the, the Roman times, the, the law of the time, and even uh, for uh, the parallels our laws today, if you're adopted into a family, you're fully brought into the family and you have all the rights and privileges of a child, meaning all the rights and privileges of inheritance are yours. So if you're a child, you are an heir, an heir of God. That means his kingdom is yours. His wonderful promises, the grace and the riches and the renewal and the resurrection, all of those wonderful inheritance, all the riches that have been lavished on us in Christ are ours. We're, we're heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Here's the wonderful thing about salvation. This is how generous Jesus is. Everything he earned in his life, death, and resurrection, he shares with you. He earns it for you. He, he creates this wonderful victory and the, the bounty and the wealth and the riches of salvation he accomplished. And then he says, here, it's yours. I'm sharing it with you. We're co-heirs with Christ. I mean, sometimes when we think about this, this idea of, of an inheritance and all the things that God has for us, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But we sort of miss that, hey, this is Christ and he's sharing it with us because that's how generous he is. And so we're children, we're heirs. So Romans 8, it's stacking another layer of the wonderful truths of the gospel. This is who we are, this is what we have. And so for you this morning, if you are in Christ, hear me. I don't know how you see yourself, the way you've walked in this morning, what's going through your head, the thoughts you've had in your head. I don't care what you're going through, whether you're going through sin, trial, suffering, and you're fearing feeling terrible about yourself, all you see is your failure, you think you're a terrible person, you're blowing it, doesn't matter, whatever disordered way you're viewing yourself, here's what Romans 8 tells you if you're in Christ, you're a child and you're an heir. That defines you over and above any other way you want to define yourself. That defines you over and above any way circumstances may try to define you. This is the good news of the gospel for us this morning. But we need to finish verse 17. Here's the wonderful promises of the gospel, but we have to finish verse 17. So here's, let me, let me read the entirety of verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering. There is wonderful promise, there's wonderful hope, there's wonderful power, but suffering is also part of the package. Suffering with Christ is part of the package. So here's what this means. The gospel does not 
remove suffering from our lives. Believing in Jesus does not remove suffering from our lives. Rather, it transforms the meaning and purpose of suffering, that we suffer with Christ. Here's what this means. It's a multifaceted meaning. We suffer with Christ, meaning that our suffering, we understand our suffering through the lens of Christ because of Christ. This suffering has been transformed. And so sometimes that suffering may mean persecution. It may mean that you're facing opposition because of your faith and because of the stand that you take for righteousness. So it can mean persecution. It can also mean suffering because you decide you're not going to sin. And maybe you can relate to this process. Sin comes in with its temptation and you feel that draw. Maybe it's just sort of stirring in your heart or some circumstance wants to tempt you. And here's what you want to do. You want to run. You want to indulge that sin. And it's a lot easier to do that than to stand and say no and by the Spirit put it to death. And if you ever try that, you know what suffering can be because there's a kind of suffering that comes when we fight back against sin. So much easier to run and indulge sin. So much easier to give in to that temptation. But when we stand because of Christ, we're suffering against sin. We're pushing back against sin in our own lives. And so we suffer with Christ. We suffer with Christ when we see just the ordinary, average, normal suffering that just life in a fallen, broken world brings. And rather than getting angry, rather than um, it wrecking our faith, Rather, we allow it to build our faith. We see it through the lens of Christ and his glory and his purposes. And so suffering now has become transformed in its meaning. We also suffer with Christ when we're willing to suffer for others. Jesus, in his suffering, sought out to love and serve and save others. And so we do the same. When we suffer with Christ, we enter into people's brokenness. We enter into their pain and their suffering, and we show compassion and we love them, and we serve them, and we speak truth to them, and we want to disciple them, and so we are agents for Christ in the midst of that, his spirit working with us, and so we willfully and purposefully take on suffering. We're willing to suffer with Christ. This is part of the package. This is what the gospel does, and so this is what Jesus does. This is what the spirit does. He takes those whom now there is no condemnation, those who have been set free from the power of sin and death, those who are children, those who are heirs, those who have the hope of the resurrection, and he sends them into the suffering world to love and to serve. We suffer with Christ. So suffering is part of the package. Look, if you want the gospel, if you believe in the promises of the gospel, if you want the benefits of the gospel and you don't want Christ, you don't want suffering, that's a scary place to be because what that says is you want all of the benefits. You want Christ's stuff, but you don't want him. So, so if we are pushing back against suffering, if we're hesitant, if we're stiff-arming suffering as part of our walk with the Lord, we should be careful because what we're saying is, Jesus, I ultimately don't want you I want your stuff. When we seek to eliminate suffering from the Christian life, what we're essentially saying, we don't want the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want the gospel of sentimentality. We want a gospel of our own design. We want a gospel that minimizes and, and sort of removes us from sin and suffering in this world. And here's what that does. It makes us completely powerless and unable to be missionaries and priests and servants in this world. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
If we're listening to a message that claims to be the gospel, but it does not say, hey, suffering is part of the package. This isn't the true gospel. This is not the gospel that Romans 8 holds out for us. And look, you don't have to believe in the prosperity gospel to fall into this. I abhor the prosperity gospel, but I struggle with this so much. Even this morning, I was struggling with this. This morning, as I walk downstairs to sort of rehearse my sermon and get ready, and I find that our basement is flooded, and in that moment, I'm like, God, how could you? God, why would you? How often does suffering hit us, and that's what we say, God, how, how could you ever allow suffering to come in my life? Why would you do this? How often do we think that we sh- it shouldn't be present in our life? That's a form of saying, hey, I want the gospel to completely just pull me out of inconvenience and suffering. Or how often are we presented with an opportunity to serve someone, to care for someone, and we know it's going to be messy and it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy, and yet we step into that and it gets messy and we're like, God, why, why did you ask me to do this? Why have you invited me into this suffering with this person? Why do you want me to disciple and love and care for them? So often we can stiff arm the suffering that comes with the gospel. But we must remember, as the Apostle Paul says, that The glory comes only if we are willing to suffer with him. The glory comes on the other end of suffering because this is exactly how Jesus walked. The path that Jesus walked to glory, to resurrection, to ascension was a path of suffering. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, your path is the same. It's inescapable. And if you're trying to escape it, you're not walking the path of Jesus. So the gospel actually invites us into suffering. It pulls us out of sentimentality. It pulls us out of minimizing sin and pain and suffering in the world. So let us not be sentimental. Let us not be given over to that false sense of the gospel. But let us not also miss the end. We suffer. We suffer with him that we may be glorified with him. So taking suffering seriously, looking it fully square in the face and taking it seriously does not mean that we walk around with sort of this dour, cynical attitude about life. Too often, we can become cynical. Man, everything's terrible. Man, all of life is suffering. Everybody fails. Everybody's failing me. I'm a failure. It's all just a mess. Why bother? I wonder how many of you are more prone to cynicism that you just, you just get down on yourself, you get down on the world, you sort of lose a sense of hope. Hey, taking sin and suffering and pain seriously does not mean we become cynics. The cynic is not more enlightened and more noble, though he thinks he is. No, the gospel has, gives us every reason not to be cynical. We are not cynics. Look, what we need to remember is that this path of suffering has an end, it has a purpose, it's not meaningless. And so here's what this means, church. Here's what it means, Christian. While we embrace suffering, while we take it seriously, we never forget the tomb is empty, right? (laughs) The tomb is empty. Sometimes we act as if the tomb isn't empty, as if resurrection hasn't happened, as if there isn't this wonderful glory, if there isn't this wonderful home for us someday. And so here's verse 18 for us, setting our expectation. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And so here's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's saying, yes, suffering is real, and we take it seriously. It's part of the package, but it's nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. Let's put it in perspective. Yes, take it seriously. Yes, acknowledge it. Yes, see that it is real. But in comparison to the glory, you can't even compare it. It's like trying to compare your four-year-old's little soccer team where they just like clump up and follow the ball to like World Cup soccer. You can't compare it, right? It's not even the same thing. It's like trying to compare a tofu burger to a burger from Dario's. Not even capable of being compared or comparing Pepsi to Coke. Not even. So this is a bold statement. This is a bold statement because... Suffering and pain are real. They, they, they hurt. They scar us. They, they damage. They, they de- leave deep wounds. And for many of us, trying to heal from that is a lifelong process. And so to, to throw this, hey, you know, compared to the glory that is to come, your suffering is nothing, that doesn't always help in the moment. In fact, if we're not careful, we can use this verse sort of ham-fistedly. But here's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's not trying to minimize. He's not trying to minimize your pain and your suffering. He's not trying to minimize what we experience in this world. Rather, he's trying to give us perspective. He's trying to sturdy us and strengthen us in the midst because he knows when suffering hits, when pain hits, it can knock us back, disorient us, cause us to lose perspective, cause us to lose faith, cause us to lose confidence. And so here we need to be reminded, hey, look, as bad as your suffering is, as bad as that trial is, as deep as those wounds go, they're nothing compared to the glory that is going to come. He uses similar language in 2 Corinthians 4.17. This is what he writes. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so the picture here is of scales being weighed. And so he says our affliction is light, meaning it doesn't have substance. It doesn't have this worth and this value. Why? Because it's momentary. It's fleeting. Again, not to minimize suffering, not to minimize pain. But, but what he's saying is, no matter how deep those wounds go, no matter how deep the scar is, no matter how much damage you sustain in this life, it is momentary. It doesn't ultimately define you. It doesn't get the last word. It's not going to stick and to stay. It doesn't have the substance to hold you forever. Rather, it's preparing you for something. It's moving you towards something eternal and weighty the eternal weight of glory, the the beauty of glory that's going to transform you someday. And that is weighty because that is eternal. That, That is the identity. That is the transformation. That is the beauty you are going to experience forever. And all of that suffering you're experiencing is moving you in that direction. So, So here's what this means. Look, not a millisecond of your suffering is waste. Oh, it might feel like waste. 
Okay, it might feel like, God, what is the purpose of this? Why bother? This seems like pointless and worthless and doesn't need to happen. But what 2 Corinthians reminds us is, no, it's preparing us an eternal weight of glory. It's somehow in God's providential hand, he is working to create this weight and this beauty that is going to define us for eternity. And so when we're talking about comparison, it isn't minimizing one and denying one. It's not sentimentality. But neither is it cynicism. Because what this is saying is, look, the last word in your life is glory. The, the, the last word in your life is beauty and weight. It's something that is going to bring wholeness and substance to you. Something that you and I cannot fathom right now, but is ultimately more true and more beautiful. When we someday walk on this renewed earth in renewed bodies glorified, we're going to be able to look back and go, hey, scripture was right. All of that suffering, all of that pain, in the moment, it felt like the end of the world. But in light of this, this glory, this restoration, in light of all that is happening, yeah, it felt light and momentary. It felt just weightless of no substance compared to this. And so we take hold of that by faith. And what that keeps us from is being cynical in this, in this broken, in this painful world. So we're not sentimental. We're not cynical. So how do we live? Well, as the rest of this passage tells us, we groan for glory. We groan for glory. And we live in this tension of the already and not yet. Like right now, in many ways, we live in the good of no condemnation. We live from the freedom of, law, of the law of sin and death. We are in Christ. We're in the Spirit. We're children of God. But the fullness of this has yet to come. We have a foretaste of the salvation, but the fullness is not yet. And so we can think of it this way. Salvation has come, but salvation is coming. Redemption has come, but redemption is coming. Renewal has come, but renewal is also coming. Joy has come, but joy is also coming. There is a glory to be revealed. And in that time, as we wait for that glory to be revealed, we groan. There's a lot of groaning going on. In these verses, the Apostle Paul talks about two sort of groans that are happening. The first is creation. As he writes in verses 19 through 22, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so here, here's, here's what the Apostle Paul is trying to paint for us here, is that in some way, creation itself is in this eager longing that the glory that is going to be revealed in us when, when all that Christ has done in us is going to be accomplished and our glorified, resurrected bodies will be revealed, the children of God in all their splendor will be revealed. Creation is so excited for that day that it waits in eager longing. So much so that it groans. And why? Because creation knows this. When the glory of the children of God is revealed, it gets set free. It's excited. Creation itself wants to be set free from futility and corruption and decay. 
Creation cannot wait for the day. You and I, maybe we are sort of distracted by life and, and forget to be excited about that day, but all around you, creation is longing for that day. Because creation has been subjected to corruption. It's been subjected to futility. So this is a reference to Genesis 3. It's a reference to God, because of the sin of Adam, cursing the ground. You see, when God created the world, it was beautiful. It was flourishing. The, the natural creation was in perfect order. And so there wasn't things like famine and disease and pandemics and natural disasters. But because of sin, God curses the ground, and now the natural order has been thrown off. And so we have things like disease. We have things like viruses and pandemics. We have natural disasters. Creation is disordered. As much as it is ordered, it is now also disordered. And it longs to be set free. And, and here's, here, here's the, the hope of creation. Here's the hope for creation. You see, when God subjected it, he didn't just sort of curse the ground, wipe his hands and say, I'm done with this, I'm indifferent to this, and someday I'm just going to burn it all up. Rather, he subjects it in hope. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the scope of the gospel, that Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, the reigning king, the scope of his salvation is all of creation. The scope of his salvation, he's going to renew this world. And this is why, church, look, it's not helpful if we think about it this way. Just let it all burn. If we get cynical about creation, we're missing the language of Scripture. Yes, Scripture talks about fire. There's a lot of fire imagery about judgment on the last day. But that imagery is not God is just going to destroy this earth and get rid of it because he hates it and then start a new one. No, he's going to renew this. He loves his creation. That fire, that judgment is cleansing. It's going to cleanse away sin and corruption and decay and evil and wickedness and pain. It's going to set back into order that which has been disordered. And not only that, it's going to be renewed more glorious than when it was first created. And so the hope in that church is that God cares deeply about this world. He cares deeply about his creation. He is all in to fix this creation. This is why we're not cynical about our world. This is why we're not cynical even in the midst of suffering because God is going to redeem it. The power of Christ, the power of the gospel, renewing all things. This is our hope. Oh, what a day. Well, what a day when creation is set free from corruption and decay and futility, when it is brought not just to its original beauty, but that beauty is surpassed. But until that day, we groan. Until that day, creation groans in the pain of child, the, the, the ch like as if it's pregnant. I've never been pregnant. I, I, I've, I've never felt the, the pains of childbirth. I hear it's very painful. So moms, you are superheroes. But here's what the, the, those pains signify. As painful as they are, what they signify is this, new life is coming. There is great pain, there is great agony, great turmoil, but it means new life is coming. And so as creation groans and all the disease and all the famine and all of the natural disasters and all of that groaning, here's what it's declaring to us. Hey, new life is coming. Glory is coming. That's the hope that we have. And not only does creation groan, 
as verse 23 tells us, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation groans and we groan. Through the pain and the sin, the sickness and the disease and the suffering and the disability and, and the mental illness and, and whatever it is in your body you carry and the suffering that that brings and the trial that that brings, look, we groan. We take it seriously. We acknowledge that it is real and it is significant and it is profound. And that is why we weep. That's why we mourn because we're groaning. We're never sentimental about this. We're never trite about this. But, but, we are also never cynical because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God at work in us and the salvation that he began in us one day will be fully completed. That adoption where now we're loved by God, our status is part of the family of God, that adoption will be fully complete when our bodies are completely renewed and transformed. Adoption is not just a spiritual reality, it's a physical reality as well. God cares about your body. Do you know this? God cares about your body so much that the scope of the power of Christ's work on your behalf one day is going to resurrect and transform and give you a brand new body free of corruption, free of pain, free of disability, free of the emotional and mental scars that you carry, the psychological damage and pain that you carry. This is the scope of God's redemption. This is why we're never cynical, church, even while we look fully and squarely into the pain that we live in. This weekend on Twitter, there is a well-known, I mean, I think he still calls himself a Christian, Christian musician, uh, who tweeted this. Heaven is not a place where you are made perfect after you die. Heaven is the realization that you're already perfect as you are now. And I remember reading that and going, well, some swear words went through my mind, I'll be honest. But for somebody who has been through abuse, somebody who carries emotional and mental pain and illness, so someone who has experienced disability and pain that just cripples them, as someone that has gone through intense and crazy suffering, someone who is racked with guilt and, and is aware of their sin, and they're just saying, hey, you're fine as you are. Just minimize all that. Don't worry about all that pain. Everything's just fine as it is. And I'm like, how in the world can you give someone hope saying that? How in the world could you give someone hope when you say, hey, just be cool with the way this world is. Just be cool with all the sin and the suffering and the brokenness. You'll be fine. That's heaven. Just come into grips with it. No, I am so thankful the gospel holds out something better for us. I'm so thankful that the power of the gospel and the hope of the gospel is that one day creation and you and I will be set free from the decay, set free from the pain, set free from death. That's the hope of the gospel. And in light of that hope that we have now, in light of the power that we have now, in light of the truth of who we are now, and in light of the glory that is to come, church, we're not sentimental, we're not cynical, rather we groan for glory. We groan because we know things are broken. We groan because we know things, we, things need to be set right. We need to be renewed and transformed, but we also have hope because of glory. 
we groan for glory. And so, in light of all these wonderful gospel truths that we look at week after week after week, let it cause us to groan for glory. And as we groan for glory, let us be willing to be those who follow Christ into the places of suffering in this world, to love to be missionaries, to proclaim the gospel, to be priests as we care for and speak truth to people and servants as we love. That's the power of the gospel as we groan for glory. Amen? Let's pray.